This is The Guardian. When it comes to the environment, we talk a lot about the climate crisis, fossil fuels, carbon emissions. But there's another ecological issue that's just as urgent. Yesterday in Montreal, in Canada, countries came together to talk about the biodiversity crisis. This conference is our chance to stop this orgy of destruction, to move from discord to harmony, and to apply the ambition and action the challenge demands. The COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference, not to be confused with the recent COP27 climate conference, will decide how to reverse massive losses to the natural world. Species are dying off as much as a thousand times more frequently than before the arrival of humans. Earth's wildlife populations have plunged by an average of 69% in just under 50 years. Almost 30% of mammals are at risk of extinction, and once they're gone, they're gone. So is COP15 our last big chance to make a difference? And what will it take to turn the tide on the biodiversity crisis? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. As COP15 kicked off yesterday, The Guardian sent me out of the cold and into the humidity and biological wonder of the tropics. And that's a very important ecosystem in itself, where you find all kinds of organisms, like small um, you know, salamanders, frogs, <laughs> insects laying their eggs in the water. OK, well, not exactly the tropics. The tropical environment of the palm house at Kew Gardens in London a vast Victorian greenhouse full of rainforest plants. Sloths really love eating those, uh, those leaves. And if it's only a... there were some sloths here. <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't have any at the moment. Tendrils climbing upwards, leaves like giant fans spreading outwards, and roots creeping their way along the soil. And there's also a very interesting thing that if you look at the stems, there's like a small holes all over the place, mm. and that's where ants will leave and build their nests. So that really I met Q's Director of Science and author of a new book, The Hidden Universe, Adventures in Biodiversity, Professor Alexandra Antonelli. Alex was getting ready to go to COP15, but I managed to catch him on a busy day in the Palm House. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you was we're in this beautiful tropical space surrounded by plants. What initially inspired your love of plants and biodiversity? I grew up in Brazil, which is the world's most biodiverse country. I would spend a lot of time with my family in the Atlantic rainforest, which covered the whole of eastern Brazil. And I would collect things, I would put them in my pockets, I would try to sort them out and mount them. I now know that many of those species were actually not scientifically described yet. So even today, after so many years, uh, we've discovered just a fraction of all species on this planet. So at least 90% uh, of all species that we think exist have not yet been scientifically described. On the other hand, we know that we are running against the clock, really, because many of those species are now facing a very dire future. 
where are we now? I mean, we talk about the sixth mass extinction. We talk about the humans being another asteroid equivalent to the one that hit the dinosaurs. Give me a picture of the state of biodiversity today. I'm afraid to say the situation is really, really bad. We at Kew have estimated that two in five plant species now face extinction. And worldwide, we estimate that about a million species may not exist here in the future if things continue as they are. Biodiversity loss is both a global phenomenon but also a local one and it's affecting not only the extinction species but the decline of individuals. So it's about bioabundance and it's about what kind of services they provide to us humans and to the ecosystems themselves. The Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services has identified five key drivers of biodiversity loss. Changes in land and sea use, direct exploitation of natural resources, climate change, pollution and invasion of non-native species. At COP15, countries will be negotiating targets to tackle each of these issues. So I asked Alex how important this summit is. So as a scientist, I really don't like exaggerating and I base my opinion on facts and it wouldn't be exaggeration to say that this may well be the most important meeting that humanity and our planet has in our entire history. We need to have a Paris Agreement for biodiversity and we need also the financial systems to support that. We don't have the luxury of failing in the same way as we did in the previous global biodiversity framework, uh, which was set to t- 2010 and 2020, where humanity actually failed to achieve e- a single one of those 20 targets. If we do that again and fail to meet the targets up to 2030 and 2050, we may not have a new chance again. So I want to see very strong commitments. I want to see mechanisms to monitor their progress over time so that we can quickly evaluate whether some of them may have to be revised or we need to have uh, extra resources to deliver them. And I also want to see this uh, legally binding. And that's one of the important lessons I think we've learned from previous agreements, where just voluntary uh, commitments are usually not enough. So we need to have the ability to hold our leaders accountable for those decisions. So this meeting is coming at a really, really critical time. And I wonder, you know, as a scientist, but also somebody who's so passionate about nature and having grown up in the forests in Brazil, how you're feeling about it. What does it feel like to be going to this meeting knowing quite how significant it is? I have very mixed feelings about this meeting. On the one hand, I think that we know from the science that this is possibly the last chance of getting this right. But deep inside, I'm very worried about the risk, really, of us not achieving that. I deeply care on a personal level about those ecosystems. Nature is everything to me, nearly. So in a sense, it's really painful to see the kind of destruction we've inferred to nature over the last 50 or plus years. Many times I think people don't realise how absolutely crucial plants, fungi, biodiversity is to our lives. So we really have to understand um, our place in the world and nature and, um, and do everything we possibly can to revert the current situation. And of course, we need to begin to see ourselves as part of the ecosystem rather than kind of owners of the ecosystem and recognise all the incredible benefits it can bring, food, medicine. But of course, 
as I was reading your book, one of the things that I was really struck by was, you know, your emphasis of the importance of seeing nature as having a right to exist just to exist and not for us and not because we need it. It is very selfish to think that species are here for us, although we have become, in a certain way, the new entity that can determine the fate of so many species. I think we have to realise that they have a right in their own, and that's a, a really important insight because one of the problems with the conservation movement is sometimes to put too much emphasis on the direct benefits to us. And honestly, I will really struggle to say why a particular species of fly in the middle of the Amazon is really needed to someone here in London. We almost think of the rights of nature as something eccentric or, you know, a new idea, but it's actually something that has been around for a long time, giving rise to a, a forest or a mountain or a river have been around in traditional communities for millennia and now uh, is the time to start recognizing that in the legal system that we have today. While we continue the destruction of many of our most biodiverse environments, scientists, conservationists and local communities are trying to preserve what's left. But to save what you've got, you need to know what's there. What are the ways that we can track biodiversity? I mean, when I think about that, you think of the initial explorers going out and catching butterflies and writing down their names in Latin on pieces of paper. But what does that look like now? In fact, it's not that different uh, from the way it was 250 years ago. But we also have new technologies to our advantage. One thing that is really pivotal now is to uh, extract the DNA in those samples and to identify species using their genetic codes. We're building libraries which allow us to easily and rapidly access the identity of those species, especially those that are very tricky because they can look very much alike uh, or perhaps they don't have, have any flowers. We're also able to obtain seeds from them, for instance, so that we can have in our uh, Millennium Seed Bank collection where we keep those seeds for the future. At the same time, we know that it, we are really running out of time. Um, those species are disappearing probably faster than we can discover them. We stood in this gorgeous tropical greenhouse surrounded by plants climbing above us. But the tropics is one of the most threatened regions, isn't it? It's absolutely one of the worst affected uh, worldwide. It's where we have the largest number of species. If you go to a tropical rainforest in Africa or Southeast Asia, South America, you'll find a much larger number of species than you would find, for instance, in a uh, British woodland. But it's also exactly, as I was saying, uh, those regions that have been most affected. And that's primarily because of commodity production. So, for instance, in South America, it's, it's most of all uh, soybeans that are now being grown and also the need of land to raise cattle. In Southeast Asia and parts of Africa, it's now palm oil. And that's, of course, causing huge threats to the species in those re tropical regions. Now, before I leave you to carry on with your science, I have to ask, do you have a favourite plant in the palm house? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really tricky question. I love them all. Um, I can't really choose among our, my, my children, I think. I'm really pleased to see the queening tree, the fever tree here. That's a tree that I've spent quite a lot of my time as a PhD student working on. And it's uh, the tree that has saved most lives in human history. For many years, perhaps hundreds of years, 
quinine, which, which is the, the substance you obtain from the bark of this tree, was the only effective medicine against malaria. So nature is uh, incredible in, in terms of the diversity of uh, resources we can find for our own use. And again, it has its own value and right to exist and really thrive long after our own species has gone from this planet. Thank you so much for taking me around some of these plants. It's been so fascinating and good luck at COP15. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure for me as well. And let's hold our fingers crossed. Thanks again to Q and to Professor Alexandra Antonelli. We've put a link to his book, The Hidden Universe, Adventures in Biodiversity, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. There you'll also find some fantastic articles by biodiversity reporters Patrick Greenfield and Phoebe Weston on COP15 and why this summit is so critical. They're on the ground in Montreal, so do head to The Guardian to keep up with their coverage. And we'll be getting an update from them both next week on the podcast. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.